Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Auto Sport Podcast. We look back at the Formula One career of Nicky Lauda and pick out his greatest races. One world is still reeling from the loss of the great Nicky Lauda, a three times world champion and an ever present in the paddock in, in recent years and his role with Mercedes and, and his, his German television work. So a very, very familiar part of, of the Formula One world all the way up to uh, to his unfortunate death. Now, Nicky Lauda is, a, is an interesting driver. He's a driver whose whole perception is dominated by that, that life-threatening crash he had at the Nürburgring in 1976 and really this we wanted to to look into his career do what we do with with some of the great drivers and really delve into him as a as a as a driver as a racer what he did and try and kind of work out where in the pantheon of the greats exactly Nicky Lauda stands I'm your host Ed Straw and joining me for this endeavor as usual is Kevin Turner of course now you kind of had you did have a Nicky Lauda great races obviously the great races are always a, a key part of the these driver podcasts we do you sort of had a loud uh, on the back burner but you've had to you've had to dedicate quite a bit of time over last weekend i think to uh, to getting it all done 
Yes, yeah, I have a, probably about 15 to 20 of these lists on the go at any one time as I'm reading different things. I had another race here or there. But, um, yeah, Nicky caught us a bit by surprise, I think. I think we all just thought he was indestructible, didn't we? Even though, obviously, we knew there were problems with his lung transplant. So, yes, I, I didn't really have much uh, sorted when we got the news last week. So the last few days in between Monaco Grand Prix, Indy 500 and all the rest of it, desperately reading lots of, uh, well, Nicky Lauder's autobiography and, and various reports and videos and things to put the list together. Well, let's start out, Kev. Where do you think... Nicky Lauda just as a driver is is placed because he's he's rarely in the conversation for the for the absolute great I'm talking the you know the top half dozen or so he do, he doesn't often break into that discussion I mean, he's clearly up there but what do you what do you think the sort of perception is of Lauda as a driver Oh, well, funnily enough, I was uh, part of my preparation for these is, is essentially to have an argument with myself, which is uh, which is quite amusing, I think, for anyone to watch. But and I was wondering where where would I slot him in? I think he's 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 on the bubble for the top ten. I think. I mean that that good. You know, I think I had him. I kept moving around, sort of between ten and twelve. Um, so I mean that's that, that's top draw, isn't it? I don't think you quite have him up there with. You know, he doesn't define his era in quite the same way. It's the that, old bar raising thing, isn't it? You yeah, know, he, he was a great driver, and there were areas where he did raise the bar, I guess, but it, it wasn't kind of a, a big stride forward in terms of what a Grand Prix driver is. No, that's probably fair. And also, I think where you can say somebody like Jackie Stewart before him was, I think. Not you wouldn't debate that he wasn't. The, yeah, he was the best driver of his era. I think Ronnie Peterson fans, or even Mario Andretti fans, or Gilles Villeneuve fans would perhaps suggest that Lauda wasn't the de facto best driver of his era. I mean, statistically, he was. And actually, of course, as we'll get to in a minute, he, he was a, not a million miles away from being a four-time world champion um, in the seventies. So um, that would have really much stamped his authority on on that period. So I think he's he's in he's in the the top ten to dozen. I think is probably where you'd place him. Which, when we put in the fact that there's thirty three world champions in history, that still puts him kind of in the top third or so, give or take of those. So you know that that's not to to do him down. Oh, at all. absolutely, a, a really a really great driver. Well, of course, any discussion of of Lauda is framed. In the context of that of that accident that that did almost kill him, the Nurburgring in nineteen seventy six in the German Grand Prix, and his sensational comeback, the whole battle for the championship with James Hunt and retiring from the Japanese Grand Prix because he felt the conditions were, were were not good enough, which is probably a fair a fair decision. But there was a lot more to louder than that, isn't there? You know, we had the, the driver before the the accident who was considered a bit of a no hoper in in his in his early years wasn't he he wasn't he wasn't a driver that people were were getting excited about when he was uh, he started off racing in a in a mini cooper got did some sports cars did some single seater racing but without massively making an impact no although it's interesting because like a lot of these great drivers he did have some experience of as a kid jumping into i think it was Volkswagen Beetle had at one stage that he was tearing around his you know the family grounds or wherever it was I think it was granddad's place um so again he was one of these people that had experience of driving a vehicle long before he was able to get a license so by the time he you know was old enough he already had what you would call natural ability but actually of course it's, it's, it's learned through that early practice really um but there's an interesting uh, part of ronnie peterson's autobiography because obviously loud uh, early on bought himself effectively a seat at march uh and was Ronnie's teammate in Formula Two and Ronnie was quite 
sure that Lauda was was pretty good. There's uh, everyone, everyone else to say, oh, he's just a pay driver, just a pay driver. I said, no, no, he's, he's really good. And there's a race at one part where I think Nicky basically finished on Ronnie's gearbox. And if you think at the time, Peterson was regarded as the upcoming guy, the king of F2, you know, second in his first full championship season in Formula One. So I think that the people that really paid attention could tell that there was there was something there. That because of the way the team was structured, it didn't work. So I think Ronnie did the first test with the new car and said, yeah, yeah, it's fabulous. And Nicky got into it. And as he was later to do it, Ferrari got out and went, well, that's pretty hopeless. But he was just the pay driver. Ronnie, had, you know, was the star driver. Got out and said, oh, it's fabulous. And it's fine. And I think the team basically didn't listen to him. Obviously, they didn't know at that point probably how good Nicky was and how strong his technical feedback was. So if they'd probably if they'd let Lauda develop the car and then at that point Ronnie would have been, you know, the quicker guy. But I suspect as the car got better, Nicky would have got closer to, to Ronnie's pace anyway. Yeah, you know, Ronnie was renowned for driving around problems. You know, he was probably one of the worst test drivers than he looked, and I think he got frustrated. But just, just to go back to the debt thing, he's that's another example of, of a very get into Formula One, then I'm gonna be paying this off for 10, 20, 30 years. If I can make it in Formula One, I might be earning enough to earn it to pay it off in three or four. So it it became a well I obviously I have to be an F one driver. And it's just a very rational, sort of dispassionate approach to it. Um, which I was well, quite interesting. Well there's two ways of looking at it. It's either the rational logical approach or it's the gambler's fallacy, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but, but I think the, the thing that I like is this this reputation, rightly, as being very single minded, focused, determined, and that must have been there then because you can take that position of well, I've got, I've got to kind of double down on this and try and make the money back. But a lot would have kind of cut their losses and not thrown good money after bad. So even in those in those days when you know his, his, his results they weren't terrible, they weren't astonishing. So. To have that within him, that ability just to keep raising the stakes, I think was a characteristic that played a big part in him becoming as successful as he did. Absolutely. And you can see it from his early life as well. He's you know, falling out with his you know, his family who think he should do something, you know, more right and proper, that you know, classic old old debate. Um and he just yeah, he sort of carried his own furrow from from the start, really. Um and I think that he actually did maintain throughout his life. And we did see with BRM, he moved there in nineteen seventy three. Now BRM was a team in decline at that point, but it was still kind of a handy renter drive kind of team. They they ran quite a few cars at times in in seventy three. But we did start to see how good he was. If you look at it over the season, his pace compared to Clay Regazzoni, who was a well established driver, was 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 pretty good. And that obviously gave him a platform to get this unexpected move to, to Ferrari. Yes, and, the, and there are little hints again, if you, you look for them, as uh, his strengths that were there. So he did make some progress with making the cad for, for most of the season. Um, but he identified that the V12 was a bit hopeless compared to the Cosworth there. So he spoke to Louis Stanley, the team boss. And Stanley was, a, I think by that time, was you know, he liked playing at being the F1 team boss. Was, goes away for a few minutes, come back on the phone. We found 20 brake horsepower more in the exhaust system. And Nicky just went, this is... It's just ridiculous. As obviously, you haven't. Um, so he was at that, even at that time he was he was pushing to improve things before you even got to the racetrack. It's just that for different reasons at March and then BRM he didn't get what he needed. But there was enough at BRM. There was the qualified six and ran third at Monaco. He also led a chunk of the Canadian Grand Prix at Mossport Park. So we did start to see these these signs. Actually, he was a serious a serious driver. But even then, I think. It did come as a surprise to people that Ferrari went for him. Obviously, they brought Regazzoni back in for for seventy four, and 
that there's talk that Reg has only recommended louder as well, but also that it's sort of lost in the mist of time exactly what the mechanism was, whether it was watching that Monaco performance, that clearly played a part. Regazzoni's recommendation clearly clearly played a part as well. Yeah, it's quite a... Uh, thinking of Ferrari's driver choices over the years, it is quite an... Un, yeah, it seems a strange, unusual choice, um, but probably one of the best driver decisions Ferrari ever made, I would think. Absolutely inspired, really. And it was also a Ferrari that at, a time, that, at that time was not quite uh, in the, in the shape it should have been they they were they were struggling they hadn't I don't think they won a race in 73 did they so it was it was a time where they needed a kind of refresh and uh, and a different approach and obviously louder ultimately he well he quite quickly established himself as the lead driver in that team and then you know they were away with just having this great success in the middle of the 70s i think there are strong parallels with the Marcus schumacher era in that respect in that you know the right people coming together at the right time the difference being of course that it wasn't a huge punt to take Marcus schumacher in 1996 because he was already obviously the best driver in the world and double double world champion whereas yeah as we say Lauda didn't really have many results to his name um but i think that you know then the outcome turned out to be quite similar well, the amazing thing was that although it was Regazzoni that had the run of the championship in that year, he was still in contention in the last race in 74, wasn't he? But, but didn't, didn't manage to win it. Lauda was leading the championship after the British Grand Prix, and then he had a run of retirements, not all of them entirely outside of his control, shall we say. But he could have been champion in that year as, as well. It just maybe took him a little bit of time to to sort of dial himself. And he, he was still a, a driver with rough edges at that stage, though, wasn't he? He he wasn't the, the calculating race-winning machine that he was he was soon to become. No, there was... Actually, the British Grand Prix that year is quite an interesting one. There lots of things happened in that race. I mean, he should have won it for a start. Um, and he got, a, he got a slow puncture. And I think it was Pete Lyons wrote the Allsport report for that. And he suggested that perhaps Lauda would have been better off coming and getting it changed and perhaps getting a third or a fourth. Whereas he tried to, I don't think this is a kind of Villeneuve seventy nine Dutch Grand Prix situation though. I think it was a, it was a slow puncher and it was quite near the end. So he thought maybe I can get away with it, and it, and it didn't work. And he came into the pits and then of course he had the farcical situation of not being able to get out of the pit lane at the end because there was a course car in the way, um, and then there was wrangling about that afterwards. So that whole race really summed up his seventy four season. I think of incredibly quick, but just one way or another things didn't quite go his way as as we see sometimes. But he had effectively established himself as the, as the lead lead driver really going into 75 despite Regazzoni's previous success i think it was it was abundantly clear within the team and probably clear to louder at this point that he was that he was the guy yeah i don't think at any point when they were at BRM or at Ferrari that louder was particularly concerned about beating Regazzoni i mean they got on pretty well i think but i think i think he knew that he had the beating of him and this, of course, laid the platform for that seventy-five championship, which I think is the point where you do start to see the the, the kind of relentless louder. Very few mistakes being made. I think he he rounded off a lot of those edges. He was still very a very quick driver, and it's often forgotten that he was quite an aggressive driver in that era. And he did have a, he did have his fair share of incidents, maybe maybe more than his fair share of incidents. Perhaps perhaps this is in the spell before the 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 Nurburgring shunt but he, he I think we have a tendency to kind of look at a driver as a as a steady state throughout their career don't we but but yeah. Lauda really did 
make big improvements um, in, say, the first three, four years he's in Formula One. Well, I think he was quite honest with himself. I always think that that's a sign of somebody who's going to be successful if they're honest with themselves. They don't necessarily have to tell the wider world what all their faults are, but as long as they're honest about what they are and, and go away and improve them. And also, of course, remember that the 312T of 1975, I think, was a step on. The, the 74 car was, was good and obviously competitive, but I think the 312T was the start of a new sort of competitive era. I think he probably wasn't having to work so hard. He could get the car where he wanted it. And of course, when you get somebody who like who's like that, who's on top of the game, they sort of got the race half one before they've even started. And I think there were a few races there where you know they had had all the boxes ticked and was able to reel off reel off the wins. Like the really great drivers, you've said before, Ed, the really great drivers kind of make it look easy when they're on top form. And I think he was getting to that point. Well, we got to that point for seventy five. Yeah, very much so. And the seventy five louder Ferrari combination was just crushingly dominant there wasn't really a battle for the championship and there was a bit there was a, a mid-season stretch of victories of course that put him in an impregnable position effectively and yeah I mean it, it must have been amazing to see this guy kind of go from this pay driver no hoper as, as he was unfairly seen by some but he was bringing money he wasn't getting results in the march certainly in, in f1 because it wasn't really really possible to if you think about it, that sort of thing it's rare that happens yeah we have seen great drivers coming off the back of funding and that kind of thing in the past but for it to have this sort of slow burn and then suddenly oh actually no he's 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 really really good yeah, the it's, great, it's great. greatest pay driver in history. Because <laughs> yeah. even, for example, you could say someone like Fernando Alonso, not a pay driver such, but he came obviously with Minardi. So on paper, his 2001 season with Minardi wasn't, wasn't much good, but it actually was very good. And there were people who were spotting how strongly he, were, he was doing. This wasn't what, what Lauda was doing. So to, to make that transition, just, just remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, um, but as you say, he learnt quickly as well because of that, because of that honesty. And I think... Well, I mean, we'll get on to the accident in a minute, but I don't think in terms of his ability, it changed. I think maybe the way he went about his business was changed. Um, but I think generally he was, uh, obviously he had to go through an awful lot emotionally. Um, but I think he was, you know, he was still a great driver after the accident as he was as he was before. Now, that's not a driver who's often talked about just for his sheer pace and his speed. We don't often hear him talked about like that, which I think is a little bit unfair, actually, because he was clearly extremely quick. Yeah, I wonder if that's a legacy of the last couple of years at McLaren when, yeah, he was, uh, well, obviously he was up against one of those top 10 drivers you're talking about before with Alain Prost. And Prost was at that stage in what you might later, what you'd call the Senna era of his life before Senna came along and Prost was in the louder role of being the quick guy. And Lauder's very honest in his autobiography about just not wanting to hang on to a thousand brake horsepower didn't know what he had underneath him yeah he was uh, he wanted to know lap by lap and you know he knew race pace he was there but he didn't really uh i think he thought it was all a bit crazy qualifying with turbo engines cranked up and also he not that important once he'd proved that he could come through the field which he done, which he did many many times you know he's got to be one of those great drivers to win from furthest back more often than most people um, I think he probably thought it was an unnecessary risk to try and find the other another half second or second uh, um, if it if it was going to be immaterial and he was going to be driving a completely different type of car come the race anyway. So he sort of, I mean, logical decision. I don't really need to hang it out. What's the point? And we should also bear in mind. I mean, rolling forward a little bit. For example, when he retired shortly before the end of the seventy nine season, retired the first time. I mean, uh, from Brabham. Obviously, it was a terrible season for Brabham, but it's. Uh, you know, it's, temp- it's sometimes sort of characterised that he didn't quite have the determination to go up, say, against a young Nelson Piquet, but he was about as quick as Piquet over, over the season. He wasn't he, he wasn't being outperformed 
by this this young charger so even though his interest was waning by his own admission that's what led in, led to him getting out of the car in canada and saying no not doing this anymore but he he was still very quick yeah he doesn't once mention um pk in that respect i mean actually he's very complimentary about um pk he's one of the sort of top four drivers he picks out that he was um that he came up against um but but he's very clear about yeah he's sort of well, what's the point in this and he went out, he said he went out for a session because he retired from the meeting where they had the, the Brabham Cosworth. And he said that it, it just, it wasn't a 12. It felt a bit boring and, oh, can I really be bored? And he just decided there and then to give up, which he, which he later is why he didn't do that in 85. He felt that that was perhaps the wrong way of doing it. But at the time he went, I don't want to do this anymore. Came in, told Bernie and, and, and Bernie Eccleston, team boss, and, and Bernie actually helped him escape the track before anyone else um, realised what was going on. Did they send Ricardo Zanino out in his helmet? They did in his helmet, yeah, <laughs> which Loud is quite funny about in his, uh, uh, his autobiography to tell him about, which I do recommend. But yes, yeah, uh, he said it must have been confusing for the other drivers. Nick, why is Nicky not doesn't know what he's doing? He's all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly believe he's, he's, uh, he's got a little bit slower. Uh, yeah, and, and interesting, isn't it? But the... I guess we have to sort of address the the question of the uh, of the accident and the seventy six season. There's so much written and talked and endlessly about the seventy six season. The first thing we should say is, without that Nurburgring accident, he's got that championship wrapped up with races to spare, hasn't he? Oh yeah, he's at, at, a, at a canter, I think. Really, I mean, he's dominant. I, I think that uh, James Hunt did drive an amazing season and I think oh, for the story it's great that he won it at the end and all the rest of it but in a normal course of events then Lauda would have yeah that would have been one of those dominant seasons um, uh, and he'd have, yeah he'd have had it wrapped up with, as you say with a few rounds to go Fuji would have been irrelevant it's amazing to think isn't it he conceivably could have won the 74 title you could argue he maybe wasn't quite ready there but could have won 74 did win 75 should have won 76 and still almost did despite it you know, 177, and if 76 Nürburgring hadn't happened, maybe he's still at Ferrari. We'll probably talk about that <laughs> shortly. But before we get on to that, let, let's hear from Giorgio Piola, of course, the legendary technical illustrator, knew Lauda well in that era. Used to speak to him regularly. Obviously, Giorgio Piola's been around Formula One since 1969, so he just beat Lauda to it. Uh, I spoke to him for one of our one of our videos. If you check out our YouTube channel, it's got all sorts of, uh, sort of videos analysing Formula One. Uh, and you can also find those on our on our website at motorsport.com. TV. So Giorgio's got some interesting insight actually into the the kind of the change of Nicky Lauda from that that accident. I think people will be very interested to hear what what he has to say as someone who knew him in that period. Nicky was had a two life for me. The one before the accident, it was quite very difficult to be a journalist and talking with him because he was very technical, nearly a driver computer, much more than. A, uh, Schumacher, for example. So he was talking not so much. He was very shy. And he was talking only about the cars and let's say nearly not giving any conception to the human side. After the accident, I found a completely different man. I, I had to understand slowly because at the beginning, the, the difference was so big, but you have to understand that he wanted to leave again. So he, he, he made his birth by himself and not because of, of his mother. After the terrible accident in Nürburgring, everybody would have stopped with Formula One. He wanted and nearly less than two months he came in Monza. It was a big shock because every time he was taking out his balaclava, there was a, the blood coming out. So he was suffering a lot. He really built his life and he built like a, a man, a real man, very, very deep, very human. He completely, I tell you, two different persons. And it's good because uh, the second person 
was even better than the other one. The other one was only a wonderful driver. The second person was still a wonderful driver and a wonderful man. And of course, it is life-defining that accident he had at Nürburgring in, in 1976. But the, the amazing thing about Nicky Lauda, Giorgio, is that that determination he had, because to him it seemed that he had to come back that quickly. He almost won the World Championship, and of course... He pulled out of the Japanese Grand Prix at the end of the season in terrible rain because of the conditions, and he still might have beaten James Hunt to the to the championship. So this, we keep hearing people pay tribute to him, tell him telling about this this determined character, this sort of straight talking, no nonsense. He just it's, it's fascinating to hear you say that almost that character was what he became yeah, after yeah. the accident. And you have to understand also that it was a very straightforward man. For example, Mauro Fargier, the chief engineer of Ferrari. When it happened in Fuji, he wanted to find an excuse, a mechanical failure to the car, and he said, no, no way, I can't drive it. So it was totally honest, even sometimes quite brutal, aggressive, and he, he loved always to say what he's thinking. And it, it was very funny because after this, the accident, and then he was staying with Ferrari, we were talking in Italian, and in Ital- his Italian was really very funny because, of course, you learn from the mechanic. So a lot of, if you say word words, but when he was saying something, even three lines, you could make a wonderful feature because he was always point to the to the most important fact. He was very sincere, very tough, very honest with everybody and with him himself. Well, of course, this this honesty from uh, from Nicky Lauda you talked about. He never really was a politician, was he? Which is strange, really, because he did, he did work in those sort, sorts of circles. But, you know, if something went wrong, if there was something that the team hadn't done correctly, obviously there was a famous disqualification. Yeah, it happened in Belgium. And, of course, I went there to to make the interview. And, you know, usually the driver, when they are disqualified, they start co- to complain like a little child, saying, it's not right, I drove, I risked my life, I won the race, it's not fair to disqualify him. And the car, his car, his McLaren, was underweight. And uh, in a very typical Italian, with some uh, rude word, he said, uh, uh, my team was really very bad, but he used uh, a tougher word. And myself, I played the fool because I drove an illegal car. No excuse, just black and white. And of course, this was something that continued to be Nicky Lauda's trademark, even after Formula One, because of course... He was a regular in the Formula One paddock. He later was an advisor to Ferrari for many years, his RTL television work in, in Germany. And then in 2010, when the Mercedes Formula One team, actually just out, just behind us, we've got the, uh, the Mercedes motorhome, he became the non-executive chairman of, of that team and played a key role in creating this team. And it, it, to me, it seems appropriate that, that when, when Nicky passed away, his team had just taken five consecutive one-two finishes, a, a show of supreme dominance greater than anything they'd even done before. And it's a pity that he had to stop his career because I'm sure he could have won other world championship title. And as you said, even in his role with Mercedes, was really always very loyal, very pushing, very close to the driver, very close, for example, to Hamilton also. And the relationship with the driver were very good. Maybe sometime he forgot that Nicky Lauda and Clay Regazzoni, they make nearly three or four accidents with Ferrari making collision with themselves because at that time was the first Nicky, he was much more aggressive. But anyway, talking again about Mercedes and Ferrari, I remember the last time that I talked with him, he said something that now I can say because there will be no problem anymore. But he said, for my work, for my profession, I'm a Mercedes. But when a Ferrari win, my heart is still 
beating them very hard because the passion he was really with the Ferrari. Of course, two world championships for Ferrari, so he's synonymous with the team. But you mentioned the relationship with the drivers, and of course, Lauda was instrumental in convincing Lewis Hamilton to jump ship from McLaren and join Mercedes ahead of 2013. It was the 2012 Singapore Grand Prix weekend, a combination of a long conversation with Lauda and another McLaren reliability problem. He had a gearbox failure while leading, perhaps convinced him to, to commit. And it's just, you know, the... the, the relationship he was able to have with the drivers the understanding they knew he, he knew what they were doing and he understood them and, and that's a rare thing to have somebody who understands drivers who understands teams who understands the corporate world as well and uh, all these aspects you know if one of these parts of Nicky Lauda was his legacy you'd yeah. think an amazing individual but to combine all this as an airline three airline companies see yeah. you know, just a remarkable individual yes as I tell you he uh, made the two lives and the second life for me was unbelievably like a miracle. In every aspect you can see, all, all what you said is fantastic, it's true. His relationship with the driver were fantastic because the driver were trusting him. It was a man that there were, it was saying even one word, but you were trusting him. And there are very few people that you trust so, so much in Formula One because a lot of people, especially in Formula One, they are very politician, even, even the driver now. They are not so straightforward, black and white, like he was and some other driver. Another one, for example, Jackie Stewart. It was always fantastic, always saying what he's thinking. Nicky is this. Everything he was saying, we were trusting completely, no doubt. And as a technical driver, people always talk about his intelligence, his understanding. Obviously, this is your specialist area. And even when you were speaking to him regularly, when he was behind the wheel of the Ferrari, do you think he was one of these drivers like a Prost who really did have that deeper level of understanding sure uh, maybe from the technical point of view even deeper than uh, the prost and it's funny because if you look in internet there are some funny quarreling between him and Mauro Forgieri because Mauro Forgieri even if he's a genius and engineer in some way was a little bit more romantic in the attitude with the technical stuff and sometimes he was saying something that Nicky didn't trust and there was a beautiful arguing and Nicky was always very focusing on the technical aspect to improve the car for example in BRM they made a big improvement following his advice and also in Ferrari was also very good as a test driver in understanding and talking with the engineer, also with the engineer from the tire. So it's very, it was really very good, a very 100% a driver and 120% as a man. Great insight there from uh, from Giorgio Pio. And of course, this, do- this accident does dominate all thinking about Lauda because it is what leads to him leaving Ferrari. You know, we speculate about how much success he could have had with Ferrari. Could he have been a three, four, five... <laughs> Six times world champion with with Ferrari could certainly still have been there in '79 when they when they won the title with with Jody Schechter for for example. But this, the whole fallout from that that accident, the fact that he didn't get the backing from the team he felt was should have been there, bringing Carlos Reutemann in, the fact that they then sort of tried to make Reutemann the lead, the the number one driver and the, the guy who was steering it, and basically Nicky Lauda deciding right, well, okay, I'm going to win the championship again, and I'm going to go away, and. and in retrospect, I think Lauda has said perhaps that was a mistake and it was maybe driven a little bit by, by emotion, which I, I, you can't blame him for. With what he's, he's been through, he, he's, he's come back. You know, the, the, the descriptions of what he did at Monza, which was about five, six weeks after the, the accident, wasn't it? 
to go there, finish fourth. And there's a there's a, a piece by Nigel Roebuck in uh, the latest Autosport magazine where he talks about seeing Nicky get out of the car. I think it was after the race, wasn't he? And it just trying to peel the the balaclava off, and then he just realises this isn't working, just tears it off. Just just the pain of of that. A simple task just shows how difficult that whole that whole thing must have been. So you can understand why he was a little bit put out. Then they decided that he wouldn't be capable of it. You can't necessarily blame Ferrari for being a little bit thinking, well, are you still going to be... Like, bringing in Reutemann wasn't necessarily in itself a bad thing, but the fact they brought in Reutemann and then suddenly seemed to switch to him and decided that Nicky wasn't up to it, even though he'd come back and proved he was, was uh, was pretty unfair on him, really, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think he felt there were mixed messaging within Ferrari. I think publicly they would tr- they sort of did quite a sort of supportive job, but within within the team, I think there were probably some people who were behind him and some people that felt, oh, well, no, he's yesterday's guy, he's, he's finished, let's move on to the next thing. And uh, that it's, was... it's kind of the old Ferrari thing, isn't it? Like you drive it, <laughs> but but the, the the driver kind of has the fatal accident, but he's still there, still still racing. They don't quite have to deal with it. No, just well, move on to the next one. Well, he said that Enzo, because I think he had a reasonable relationship with Enzo Ferrari. I mean, he actually says, yeah, if there was an issue with something, he would just go and see Enzo. And other people thought that that was ridiculous. You can't do that. But he said Enzo was always absolutely fine. We knocked on the door, went in, spoke to him about something, and he he, de- he again logical. Well, I'm going to go and speak to the guy that can make this this better. Um, so I think there was some there was some respect there, um, but he the, he talks about um, he talks about an offer that um, uh, Enzo made I think at the end of '76 about being team boss for '77. Ah yes, yeah. yeah. And he thought, what what's this about? And then he said, then I twigged. Obviously, but he doesn't really know what to do with me. He's not convinced that I'm going to be back to what I was, but he doesn't want me driving for anyone else just in case I am. <laughs> I am still on on top form. This, so is where, this, this is where Lauda started to do these threats about. Oh well, McLaren will have me. That's right, which, which, made I, think, up. which I think was t- totally fabricated. But I, I guess if you're looking at that, you're thinking, well, they're not going to replace James Hunt, but they might replace Jochen Mass. Yeah, imagine a Hunt Lauda team and McLaren for '77. That would have made a good film, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, actually, actually, sorry, mentioning the film leads me just to think about something else about Lauda, which the, the kind of the, the view the view of him. It, which is reasonable is this very calculating character very focused very determined i do think that the film the film rush the ron howard film which is a very good film it it, it almost creates that false false uh false false polar opposites between hunt and louder because it louder wasn't an unfeeling calculating machine while hunt was the the the, the you know the good time guy who was just the, com- the complete opposite that they they were actually well they got on very well they were quite they're actually quite similar and louder was a perhaps a more emotional character than is made out Oh, it definitely was. Yeah, he talks about how much uh, he's talked about how much um, emotion he was going through, obviously during the accident, but um, but but throughout his career, and how but he was all about how to deal with it. Yeah, you know, logically had to rein himself in to deliver what I needed to deliver. A little bit like Jackie Stewart, actually. That's the take take the emotion out of the cockpit. Um, and I think um, I, I think he, but he was still feeling those emotions. He was just doing a, a better job, if you like, of of keeping them in check, keeping them in, in one part of his life um, so that he could do what he do what he did. And, and of course, that decision to leave Ferrari did did not work for him ultimately. He went to Brabham for, for two years. He won two races in 78. Both have asterisks against them. One of them was in the fan car, the one-off fan car that was effectively but not literally banned after the 78 Swedish Grand Prix. And the other one was Monza, where, of course, he didn't win on the road, but there were jump-start penalties. So 
So so he, it was it was it was a win, but not not on the road. So that was just not the right time to be at Brabham, was it? It, it? Not competitively, but I think he probably quite liked the change. He he quite liked working with Bernie because although he said Bernie was incredibly hard to negotiate with, once you'd got the deal and sh- shaking your hand, that was it. Like he would stick to his word. And I think that Nicky again straightforward, be an honest thing. Right, well, let's be absolutely at each other during negotiation. But once we've established what we're doing, we're doing it. And he liked Gordon Murray as a designer. So I think he enjoyed his, his time at Brabham. The thing that let them down was, of course, the Alfa Romeo engine. Um, had it been a Brabham-Cosworth at that point, I think um, an Eccleston-Lauder-Murray combination, that, that that could have been quite different, that, that era. So, yes, in terms of the raw numbers, it would have probably been better to stay at Ferrari. But maybe at that point in his life, it was the, it, it was the right thing for him. And let's not forget, he actually walked out on Ferrari before the end of 77. I've won the championship, goodbye. Um, so he he sort of had the the last last perhaps not the quite quite the right phrase, but he told told Enzo where to go. Um, but he said, you know, years later they they kind of healed that that rift, and 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 it was all. You know, I think Enzo did respond to that kind of thing, sort of respected, you know, being your own man. And of course, Lauda did go on to have a long association, of course, as yeah. advisor to to Ferrari in in later years. So clearly, it wasn't uh, too much of a, of a riff. But yeah, well, when the when the Brabham finished, certainly in seventy eight, it was it would finish quite well, but uh, it didn't finish that often. And then seventy nine, things were pretty bad. It wasn't yeah, especially competitive, yeah. and it wasn't certainly wasn't any more reliable. If anything, it was it was slower and less reliable than the than the year before. So. I guess that's the interesting question because he did talk about when he left Ferrari and moved to Brabham that he kind of felt the weight off his shoulders. So it's quite easy to say, well, if he stayed at Ferrari, he'd won all these titles over these years. But maybe he'd have just got to the same point and had a bit more success in the short term but retired. Never thought about coming back or having the second career. You know, you can never be sure of, of, of what would happen. Of course, Ferrari... Was continued to be up and down in this in, in this period as well, but that I, I think the thing is that he is associated with one of those golden eras of Ferrari. When we see this with Ferrari, there's a few periods where it really comes together and the potential is lived up to, and and that louder period in the mid seventies was was one of them, just as the Schumacher one was for a slightly longer period of time earlier in this century. Yeah, I'd argue it's actually only really happened twice. You know, I think when Lauda went to Ferrari, he couldn't believe. He said, how do they not win every race? Which, And he's not the only driver to have said that. You know, now their facilities are still pretty impressive. But back then, they were on a completely different level to everyone else. And how they, you know, they had their own test track and the facilities on, on the site and obviously doing their own engines. And obviously later on, the integration became so important between the two. And they'd always had that. So... Yeah, the, 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 I mean, this is a different podcast, but the story of Ferrari is, is failing to live up to the promise, really, except for, as you say, when Loud and Foggieri were together in the 70s and then the, the Schumacher, Braun, Bern era in the, in the 2000s. Um, and we're still waiting for them to get to the, to the third one. But I think the one thing you can say is that for this era, and obviously the 70s was very competitive for Formula One, you can argue 74 through to 79, he was unquestionably one of the best couple of, of drivers. I'm just trying to think who you take over him in, in, in that period. Probably not. I mean, James Hunt on his day could be, but you take Louder over Hunt, I think, in terms of uh, of the all round package, quite quite happily. And there's guys like Schechter there who are very good, but maybe not quite. Again, the, the all round package that Louder was, and then Gilles Villeneuve just starting to come onto the onto the scene uh, as as well. But yeah, if you, if you he kind of connects up, fills that gap between Stewart and I guess Piquet 
Yeah, I think he he is the driver of his era, really, isn't he? If we're honest, yeah, I think I think he is, but perhaps not by as much a margin as some of the other guys we talked about. So that's why I was thinking, oh, tenth, eleventh, <laughs> yeah, but absolutely, yeah, one of the benchmark drivers, and certainly the best all round package of that. You know, I think on that grid there would have been quicker drivers. I think as you say, Hunt probably was faster over a lap. Ronnie Ronnie Peterson could be Villeneuve, as you say, was just coming in, um, but I don't think there was as complete a driver. After Stewart and and before Prost, really, as as uh, as louder. Yeah, I think that's always a good test, isn't it? Is there a period where he'd be the first guy if you had any choice of drivers? I think louder would be the one you'd take. And and I think the, the thing that is positive is just how simple he would have been to deal with. I think that 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 characterised him throughout that he was straightforward and to the point. And while not a politician, he was able to deal with people at a corporate level reasonably well, provided they were they were direct. And it. It's quite useful to be able to almost divide his career up. So you have these sort of three phases. The first half of the career has the two halves, before and post-accident. And then, of course, you have the comeback later on, which there's there's kind of mixed messages about exactly why he came back, really, because obviously the Louder Air, which is a commercial airline that he was investing his time in, wasn't in the world's greatest shape, but he quite he regularly denied that that, that was the motivator even later on. He said he could have got out of it whenever he wanted, so it wasn't actually a major crisis. But he, he presumably wanted to to did that genuinely want to come back. I imagine there was a bit of both. I like to believe the louder version. That's sort of more romantic, isn't it? They just would have wanted to. I mean, Ron Dennis apparently, um, yeah, McLaren boss was ringing him pretty much every other month. Are oh, you going to come back? You're going to come back? And for well, a while, this was that period. If you remember, if you look back in old autosports from that period in the early eighties, there's loads of this going on. Mm. Of, there's a bit of a driver shortage. And there's, there's a, you even see stories about people trying to tempt Hunt back or Jackie Stewart with big money offers because they're just looking for drivers. So you, you can see why that that would have why that would have happened. Mm. And 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 he, I think he went. He said to start with, it, watching a Grand Prix after he retired, he had absolutely no interest at all. And then I think it must have been some point in '81 he went to a Grand Prix. I think it was probably the Austrian Grand Prix. And watched it and actually quite enjoyed it and thought, oh, uh, and because Ron had been honoured him, <laughs> he, he eventually agreed to do a test at Donington Park um, to to see if he still could. And he was horrendously out of shape and the new ground effect cars he didn't really enjoy. Um, so you had to do the what I'd describe as the Derek Warwick trick of coming out with an excuse to come in every few laps because his neck was gone, but to ask for a setup change was quite a good little tactic. Um, and then went away and you know, decided, I think he got within a tenth of, of Watty, John Watson, who'd set the benchmark time, decided that that was pretty handy, went away, got fit and was ready to go for the start of the 82 season. And very quickly, he was a winner again at, uh, at Long Beach in that season. So yeah, it was in that in that regard, like he'd never been, been away. I guess the thing is that sometimes drivers do benefit from a break. We recently had Kimi Raikkonen, who marked his 300th Grand Prix entered at Monaco, not his 300th start, so a few non-starts in, in that period, so not officially his 300th start. But he said that if he hadn't had those two years off when he did rallying, there's no way he'd still be racing in Formula 1 now because he had that break, that time away. And I think that maybe maybe that's that had an effect for Lauder. He had a few years off kind of just the relentless grind of just being a Grand Prix driver will have been will have been taken taken away and then suddenly you're kind of refreshed you've you've had a go at a different challenge you're refreshed ready to come back and and uh, and give it another go well also he said he got frustrated with the pace of life outside of motor racing you know he said everyone in F1 is geared for lap time and do it as quick as possible new you know, changes here's a problem solution go and onward and onward and he found that the normal life business life 
he found that he had to really make a mental effort to to slow himself down, and I think that that probably was a bit frustrating as well. So, yeah, I, I like to believe that it was more that he he came back for personal reasons rather than financial. Although he did do an incredible, I think he was the best paid Formula One driver ever when he came back. Um, I can't remember whether it was for eighty two or whether he did a new deal for eighty three and eighty four where he got paid a lot. But, I mean, he, he did make sure that Ron Dennis and Marlborough did, did pay for his services. Yeah, and they, they got good value out of it. Obviously, he was he was instrumental in terms of kind of driving on uh, the team and getting that getting that tag Porsche engine into the car slightly earlier than they planned, which was useful. Gave them a rolling start into, into 84, which obviously benefited them. Well, I think that's another classic louder move, wasn't it? John Barnard, the designer, who he, he rated highly, but was... Absolutely convinced that they didn't need to run the, the Porsche engine car at the end of 83. Uh, we'd come out of the blocks in 84. And Nicky, you know, t- turbo technology then was, okay, so it had been established in Formula 1. It had taken over by then. But getting a project up and running was pretty hard going. You know, Renault had had it the longest and never won a championship with it. So he was adamant that it needed to be in. He went behind Barnard and Ron Dennis's back to Marlborough to put pressure on them to run the car. And for the last four races of 83... He had the MP41E, and um, yeah, in three of those races, he had problems, I think. Or three meetings, he had problems. And then the fourth one, bang, suddenly they were there and they were the quickest thing apart from the Brabham BMW. So what would have happened in 84 had that not happened? Would they have wasted the first three or four rounds with silly little problems? So again, Lauda probably deserves some of the credit for their incredible 84 season from behind the scenes point of view, not just the driving. No, very much so. And uh, yeah, I think... Any team benefits from having a driver who they can really focus on and really knows that. Prost was probably starting to be able to be that, but maybe not quite there at that stage as, as he as he would be because he was still inexperienced. Obviously, he'd come from the from the, the Renault environment, which was uh, a, a good team, but maybe perhaps not the most focused at times. Well, of course, the groundwork had already been done for 84 because Prost was a late signing. Um, because obviously Renault, Renault used him as the scapegoat about that because obviously he'd done all the work and this young hot shoe was coming in. Yeah, John Watson made the mistake of not signing a deal That's when he had the chance. He overestimated his own market value. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he did, I mean, he did. I mean, Prost coming in was a different uh, different uh, proposition, although they did have very similar approaches. He found him very easy to work with. I think he was suspicious of him to start with. Um, but they they were very honest with each other. Their setups tended to work. It was it was a, a kind of a you know, it was a dream team. You know, we're talking about two of the top ten or twelve drivers in F one history together and working together successfully, uh, which is uh, not what happened later on in the decade. And of course, the the famous eighty four season with Lauder winning the title by half a point against Prost, often characterised as the the wily veteran against the against the younger, rawer driver. There's a small element of that, but I think also. Ultimately, Lauda did have some luck on his side that year. We've, we've got to accept that. Yeah, he definitely... Well, if you look at how far off in qualifying he was, we've talked about why that was already, he did obviously get close in the races. But by and large, even though he was in the ballpark, Prost was still going to beat him at most races. There were very few events in 84 where Lauda beat Prost in a straight fight in the races. So uh, he did not he did need luck. Uh, on his side to win, even up to the finale, you know, um, which we'll, we'll come to later. You know, he required he required Nigel Mansell's Lotus to re- retire to get into the second place. He needed to win the championship. So, I do think that he was fortunate to win that title. But then, looking at it overall over his career, you'd say, as we said, he should probably have had 
at least one more in the 70s so it kind of balances out in the end oh yeah <laughs> i think certainly a triple world champion he definitely definitely is right to be yeah to be one obviously 85 he kind of he, he did tail off a bit he did actually have quite a lot of bad luck as well in in that season almost uh the the slight luck that went from 84 went against him in in 85 so i think his final season was maybe better than it was made out than it than it looks on paper it looks like he's like won the last championship and then just sort of sat back and only only really bothered it, on one weekend but that's not quite fair. it wasn't a jody sheck to 1980 type season where he basically couldn't be bothered from the start and of course in fairness to Schechter obviously the, the 85 McLaren was much more competitive than the 80 Ferrari but no he was he was still competitive but he had yeah as you say he had absolutely woeful luck and also he he uh, he's talked about not being the loved person by Ron Dennis and this, this has actually come up a few times during McLaren's history I think Ron Nicky never suggested he didn't get equal equipment he was he said that McLaren absolutely professional equal equipment but it was clear where Ron's yeah, you know, feelings were it was with Prost, as they later were with Senna, as they later were with Hakkinen over DC. You know, Ron had his had his favourites, and and Nicky didn't feel that that. It, it, and in fact, he confronted him on one day about it, and it was basically, well, because you got so much money out of me in that negotiation, sort of thing, which is pretty interesting insight into the way Ron Dennis thinks as well. Was it in the Nigel Robert piece where he said when? Lauda announced his his retirement at the end of the season, uh, for the end of the season. I think it was in Austria, the Austrian Grand Prix. Austrian Grand Prix, 85, yeah. Yeah, Ron Dennis then talked about, well, next year we'll have two top drivers again. And uh, I think it, it, this wasn't the robot piece, was it? Was, it was, yeah, in, the, in uh, this, week's, this week's magazine. And yeah. it was a sort of a slightly classless uh, thing to do, which Lauda wasn't especially delighted with, given that <laughs> that's kind of... Well, because no, the standard thing is to say very nice things about the person who's won you the previous year's championship it wasn't like 85 was going badly for the team was it? yeah no, I think Nigel uh, Roebuck describes that as the uh, he'd never before or since seen Nicky so angry and now Nigel Roebuck knew louder for over 40 years so, uh, and I imagine that Nicky was cross on a few occasions during that time so that yeah gives you some idea I, I think I think Ron did later apologize for that to be fair I think he, he just got the t- he got the, the mood of the moment wrong and upset upset louder which is a bit which is unfortunate well, before we get on to, to his greatest races, we should just talk about the post-F1 Nicky Lauda. We don't want to get into it too much. Uh, the, this isn't kind of what we're, what we're really trying to talk about here, but we should say the involvement he had with Ferrari as advisor for, for a long time and then team principal at Jaguar, during which he, he actually made a brief comeback test to show how easy it was. And to his credit, he did get out of the car after struggling and say, actually, perhaps it's not quite as easy as I'd, as I'd, uh, I'd suggested. But that's, that's amazing, isn't it, that you had uh, Lauda that was... Uh, Early uh, January two thousand and two, tested the uh, tested the Jaguar, uh, and then of course his integral part in building up the Mercedes team of, of today. He played a key role in terms of the negotiations with between Bernie Eccleston and uh, the, the um, Mercedes board and everything to actually how how things were going to work. So again, those old connections still uh, do, doing him good, and because he had this slightly strange non-executive chairman role it's it's quite difficult from afar to really see what you got into but he was heavily involved in 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 quite a lot of elements of that team and in fact even Toto Wolff who's kind of uh, since Lauder had the the lung transplant in the summer break last year which knocked him out out of action uh, you know Wolff had to take on quite a lot of extra work so Lauder was doing and contributing a lot to that team well it's quite it was quite must have been quite a good role for him because in that he was kind of Whenever he was interviewed, he was separate enough that when he said something outrageous or uh, to the point, 
rather than the politically correct answer, as, as, as Nigel Robots pointed out. Um, he was Nicky Lauder being quoted, but of course he was still playing a very important role at Mercedes. And I do wonder as well whether, because of his own honesty and to his own career, that tallies quite nicely with the way that Ross Braun likes to go about running a team. It's like there's no blame culture. We just need to find the problem and solve it. And those two things to me are very, very close. And they're the two figures quite key in the early days of that Mercedes team. And, and actually, that is absolutely integral to the success that team's had because they're very, very, very good at just creating a, an environment where people can stick their hand up and say, right, that, that was the error, let's solve it without the fear factor, which is perhaps something that Ferrari at times hasn't always thrived, thrived in. But I think that's so important that they're, they're, there's that willingness to be direct about stuff in that you can somebody can be kind of held responsible without necessarily being scapegoated or cast into the ocean and banished for their for their error. Yes, yeah, and it's uh it, it, I mean it's well the the results speak for themselves, don't they? A very long period of, of of success. But also of course the his contribution to getting Lewis Hamilton to the team. Um as much as it's fortunate for Lewis that he's been at Mercedes with this incredible car Mercedes have also been incredibly fortunate to have Lewis in the car at times, you know, especially over the last two or three years. I think there have been times where having Hamilton has made the difference between them actually losing to Ferrari or not. And Nicky was, I mean, you'll know this better, I'm sure, Eddie, you've spoken to both parties, but I believe that Lauda was very key in persuading Hamilton. It was because at the point in 2012 when that conversation took place, yes, McLaren is a bit unreliable, but it was still a championship contending team, which the Mercedes wasn't quite yet. Yeah, Mercedes had broken through as a race winner in 2012, but but still had some some way to go. And Lauda didn't initiate the conversations between Mercedes and Hamilton, but he was critical in getting it over the line to get Hamilton to sign on Dossier Line. It was a Singapore weekend, a long conversation Hamilton and Lauda had. That combined with the fact that Hamilton was leading the race and had a gearbox failure as a result of a bit of the, as I understand it, a bit of the mould being left in the gearbox that got loose and caused caused the failure. And that kind of gave him that final push to, to make the move across. And in fact, Lewis Hamilton, obviously the Monaco Grand Prix in weekend, I was, I was in Monaco, they, they were just wall-to-wall tributes to, to Lauda and they were they were honest and, and heartfelt and it just showed how much impact he'd had on everyone. Those who knew him were were, were glowing and kind of beyond the, the just the automatic call of duty of, of course, you've got to pay tribute. But even those who didn't know him so well, the drivers who only occasionally dealt with him had positive things to say. But but Hamilton, as part of that, said that he'd be only be a one-time world champion without without Nicky Lauda, such, such was the influence he had in making the move to, to Mercedes. And I suspect Hamilton would have found himself into a championship-winning car even if he'd stayed at McLaren in the in the short term after that. But again, it just shows the 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 kind of impact he was able to have on drivers well i think people yeah trusted what he said you know i think he was yeah they 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 could believe it so yeah i can well imagine that that nicky was able to be very very persuasive and convincing to to lewis particularly after he just had a another mclaren car failure during that campaign yeah you could certainly rely on louder like if you did an interview with him or spoke to him to get an, an honest answer you were never suspicious about about his uh, about his agenda, shall we say? It was always uh, always what he what he thought, and yeah, just just amazing that he had this second career. Well, it's almost third career. So he had the Formula One uh, team leadership roles. Obviously, he had three airline companies. Uh, we should briefly mention the the role he had when when the Louder Air flight went down, um, and the battle he had with Boeing to, to accept responsibility. It was the thrust reverse that had 
deployed without being commanded and he flew simulator flights of course he was a commercially rated pilot himself louder to show it wasn't recoverable and, and even offered to say well if you think it's recoverable send me up in a plane we'll simulate it we'll, we'll, we'll not simulate it we'll make it happen and i'll try and recover it and yeah like, you come up with me yeah yeah no, the thing is obviously he knew they wouldn't allow him to do that but i'm sure if they said yeah go on then he'd probably have tried he'd probably have had a go just to just to show and he got boeing to admit their their um their their error so just took that that relentless dogged determination into everything he did yeah, I, 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 I sort of love that. I mean, obviously, not the reason for having to have that investigation in the first place. I think if I think Nicky described it as his, you know, sort of the worst thing that ever happened in his life. Um, but yeah, the, the the determination and they're just making sure they got the right result because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to be fudged. And I think that the day after that he they made that offer, I think I'm getting this right, was when Boeing issued the statement because I think up to that point they were still trying to, you know, put a different, slightly different spin on things. And uh, and when they the, their technicians refused to go up up with him, yeah, ne- never play. I don't think you would ever want to play chicken with Nicky Lauder. He's going to beat you every time, isn't he? Surely, <laughs> that's very very good advice. Well, uh, yeah, the 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 after F one racing career of, uh, of Nicky Lauder is a whole uh, whole other podcast in its in itself. Well, let's let's look at his his greatest races. Obviously, these are based upon you picking out just his greatest Formula One race drives. Based on based on circumstances, not necessarily the best results. So you started off with uh, one of the important races in his career. We've mentioned it before: the seventy three Monaco Grand Prix in the BRM, qualified sixth, finished third before retiring with a gearbox problem, and yeah, certainly got him noticed. Yeah, so this is I actually did it slightly different order because I was pressed for time. I did it slightly different order, so I actually went through loaded the race reports first, and then went through his autobiography. Normally, I'll do it the other way around, but I was waiting for it to arrive in the post. Um, and that's very good to Helen back. I'd recommend it. It is. It's definitely one of the best um, autobiographies. Um, I don't know who did the caption. Some of those need a little bit of a sub, I think. But the actual <laughs> text itself was very good. Um, but um, and this one was on the bubble, and then he he talks about it. Uh, and I just thought the circumstances in which it happened were were remarkable because he, you know, by then he was just you know up, uh, up to his eyes in debt, and he cleverly sort of managed to move money around to get BRM's first instalment already paid him for the first few races and the next one was due after Monaco and again very rational thing I need to prove myself I need to prove that I'm a star before that payment comes along <laughs> and Monaco I think was the last race before the second one was due and he put it sixth on the grid ahead of his teammate or team leader as supposedly Clay Regazzoni and then a little bit fortunate to rise to third but he then, the only two people ahead of him were Jackie Stewart and Emerson Fittipaldi, who were obviously in the process of fighting for the world title. Uh, he was next, and he was holding off Jackie X's Ferrari uh, until the car, until the BRM broke. So uh, Louis Stanley, BRM team boss, said, yep, you can, you know, we'll pay you now to be an actual Formula One driver. And he always credited that as being a key driver in getting the Ferrari offer for 74. So, um, yeah, I think it was a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important early race in his career without that event we may not be talking about any of the other races yeah it's a proper i guess kind of come of the hour moment isn't it although he he had uh he had scored uh points finished fifth in in belgium hadn't he but yeah that was a slightly different uh kind of drive from a little bit lower down the grid but monaco yeah just just showed he, he could cut it yeah absolutely yeah that 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 belgium actually if i remember correctly is uh the, the, there were some issues with the track and lots of people fell off so that was a young young driver keeps his head to keep the car on the road while others fall off whereas i think that the yeah, Monaco is a great place to make a statement as a driver, isn't it? Um, if you can hack it there. And actually, uh, there were a lot of Monaco Grand Prix that were potentially included in this list. He really was, and we'll get to a couple more of them later on, but he really was pretty special on there. And I think that was probably the first sign of it. 
Well, number nine, 1977 South African Grand Prix at Kyle Army, which he won for Ferrari. Obviously a race that's remembered for different reasons, usually. Yes, I mean, it's sort of doing this list underlined how dangerous this era of Formula One was, really. So this is the race that um, Tom Price was killed because of the marshal running across uh, running across the road. Um, so I think events thereafter kind of tend to get forgotten, really. Um, but Lauda at that point hadn't won since his accident. So it was quite a key race for him. He really wanted to show that he could still do it. Um, he tracked James Hunt's McLaren early on, went past and then disappeared down the road, made it look very easy. But then the, the, the great drivers then are also able to do that when they've got a car problem. And actually his car was damaged by some of the debris from that horrible accident. Uh, and he was losing water and all the gauges were off the clock and all that sort of thing. So he was, he had to bring the car, bring the car home. Um, uh, rather than yeah, well, it wasn't an easy cruise to the flag, basically, but another crucial win on his, on his well, I guess, a, a milestone on his comeback. Yeah, very much set him on the way to the the seventy seven title. Well, number eight is a race I'm very fond of, simply because of the circumstances in which Nicky Lauda took the lead uh, from a driver who wasn't quite as successful, but is uh, it was quick on his day. But the nineteen eighty two uh, US Grand Prix at Long Beach, the first win of his of his second F one career. Yeah, so this was a biding your time on top of the job type drive, which is uh, was pretty impressive given it was his third race back. But I, I, yeah, you're referring to Andrea De Cesaris, who was uh, that was one of his days where he'd taken a bit of a surprise pole <laughs> the day before. Uh, Lauda followed him, and um, uh, De Cesaris then uh, got a bit cross in traffic. Perhaps you'd like to tell that bit of the story. Well, he just <laughs> realised that if you're using your arm raised to demonstrate that you're annoyed with Ralph Bazell holding you up and you need to change gear with that hand you're going to slow down well not you're you're going to hit a bit of a wall in terms of acceleration so yeah he he's got his arm out of the cockpit hits the top of the gear and Lauda just goes past him which I just think is brilliant well, I rather like Lauda's fairly sardonic uh, account of that one with I pulled out past him giving him a wide berth after all you have to watch yourself when you pass someone who is so busy shaking his fist that he forgets he has to change gear which is exactly what it was the, the, the footage um, of it there's some elevated footage that shows it from sort of side on you can you can see it's like there's just a sudden point where, where the just runs out of, um, of, of acceleration well two contrasting drivers you probably couldn't think of could you those yeah two? very 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 um, much so although uh, I, I, I do uh fascinating career to andre there's, there's, there's yeah yeah that's a different we should do that podcast but it, there's a brilliant uh, i wasn't able to include it in the magazine piece unfortunately but um in uh, nigel robot's report that race he has a brilliant finish because um uh, alan jones who's obviously only just uh, retired and has released a book during during the course of that book um which i've also read he he talks about oh maybe the reason loud was so successful is because he had 12 cylinder engines during his career and he was able to crank the wing up, wing up so he was quick through the corners and just the quicks down the straights you know and then he left when the DFV came into Brabham and um, Robox uh, Robox finished the report is just Alan I have news <laughs> because obviously the McLaren's DFV engine he just he just defeated everyone comfortably on his third race back yeah exactly that's uh, well that, that, that answer that question uh, the 1983 South African Grand Prix at Kyle Army which is not one that leaps to mind as an obvious louder one but very very good reason for that yeah well two two reasons actually one was because of that story that we've already talked about of him persuading well, Marlborough actually, to get the Porsche tag engine into the McLaren before the end of the 83 season. And this was the final race. So this is the PK Prost showdown. Not that it was really, because Prost was fighting without any weaponry by then. Um, 
and he started you know he started 12th so this is a, this is a kind of a prelude to what's going to happen the following season really louder back in the pack um and he just picks people off he just comes through um uh, and again Nigel Robert described it as Nicky driving from an aggression we have not seen for a long time but doing it with perfect line and judgment and he was just clinically picking them all off and he passed everyone except PK and Patrese in the Brand BMWs and obviously when Prost retired and uh, PK then kind of just cruised around to win the championship he he, he went after Lauda went after Patrese got within three seconds actually but I think the Brabham was too quick and he was going to hold on so it would have been a second place a charge from, from sec to second from 12th um, but the car broke, so um, yeah, it was a, um, it was a. I think he was classified eleventh. So yeah, on the, in the history books, in the stats, it doesn't show up this race. But I think this is a a signpost to what's going to come for the next year. Uh, the nineteen eighty four French Grand Prix at Dijon. So that was in the McLaren in his third championship year. Certainly a race that Lauda uh, enjoyed his own driving. Yes, this is why I got this in. This is the probably the one race that I hadn't had on my radar until I read his autobiography. Um, but this is the race that he feels that he would have beaten Prost, irrespective of Prost's problems. Um, again, another charge through the field, and I think he was ju- he just caught Prost when Prost peeled off into the pits with a wheel problem. Um, and then he then he's left to to take on Patrick Tombay's Renault. Eventually, forces him into a mistake and gets the lead. The other reason it's in there is because there was a bit of confusion with uh, with the team because Lauda had agreed with Ron Dennis to do a pit stop at halfway. Ron, because of Lauda's charge, decided, oh, he doesn't need one. But Nicky was thinking, well, because I've done this charge, my tyres are stuffed, I need to change them. Got no board and only realised that the, the race was half, more than half gone when he saw, I think, someone else's sign saying how many laps to go. So he came into the pitch, the stop wasn't great, and he lost the lead again. Um, he charged through, catches Tom Bay, wins the race. Um, and he basically said he, you know, he was upset because he had to drive faster than he felt was necessary. So he had to he, he pulled out the stops, basically. So he was furious for having to drive one of his best races. Yeah, but just uh, just shows that even though in 84, Prost was the kind of, the maybe the quicker driver there, Loud was still capable of these kind of attacking drives, which is, uh, yeah, which is very good. Number five is 75 Monaco Grand Prix. Obviously, you mentioned Monaco is an important circuit, circuit for him. That that one of his uh, his victories there. Yeah, absolutely. So this is showing to that you, know, you can take um, taking the heat under pressure. Really, um, a wet start. So Monaco in the wet, a challenge for anyway. And he had uh, well, he was he was first attacked by Jean Pierre Jarier, but Jarier crashed on the first lap. So I don't think he had to put up with that for too long. But he did have Ronnie Peterson and Tom Price challenging him in the wet. Made no mistakes, kept the lead, came into the stops uh, at the right time, put on put on slicks, um, got himself a nice cushion, and then he had Fittipaldi charging at him, um, and still still no mistakes, um, and um, kept a nice cushion, and actually did again have a car problem that he was carrying towards the end. So it was it had everything thrown at him. Really he had charging rivals from behind, difficult conditions, changing conditions, and a car problem, and still and still racked up one of his. Um, you know, one of his 75 victories. Actually, that started him off on a run that effectively clinched the championship. Yeah, one of two Monaco Grand Prix victories. Of course, I think he had pole there three times as well. So very strong around that circuit. In fact, it's another Monaco drive that you put fourth in this list, but not his 76 victory. No, his 76 victory did almost make the list, but it almost seemed a bit too easy, if you like. I'm sure it wasn't because it's Monaco. But yeah, I think in 76, he just had such a big advantage over everyone. I don't think he had to delve in, delve deep, dig particularly deep at all. Um, it was a, a, you know, a guy at the top of his game in the best car delivering a win. Whereas seventy eight Monaco, 
um, is uh, I got more and more excited about this the more I looked into this race. And there's footage on there's footage on YouTube as well. It's uh, it's, it's worth having a look. And um, yeah, so he he has actually outqualified by John Watson and ran who's his teammate and ran behind him and Patrick Depay early on, which made me think, oh, qualifying behind your teammate is just going to make the list. And then he gets a puncture after Watson um, breaks a fried and he goes down the escape road. Louder gets a puncture, comes in, and then puts on uh, what I would describe as a Nigel Mansell-esque charge through the pack um, and ends up overtaking Schechter's uh, wolf in the last three laps to get second back. So he gets back to second, and his fastest lap is not only quicker than his own practice time, his own qualifying time, it's 1.9 seconds faster than the best racing lap of anyone else in the event, which I think is, that for me is the race that shows... Uh, that he was quick. It wasn't just about being clever and canny and you know all that precision we talk about. He when he had to hang it out, he he would. And there's some great shots of him being sideways and going up against the barriers. He obviously just had the bit between his teeth that day, and he just absolutely went for it. Well, Monaco, of course, is a great test of uh, of, of drivers pace and their ability to really lay it on the line without overstepping the mark and that's that tells you a lot about louder well the next race a very different drive the 84 portuguese grand prix that's number three in your list of course he finished second from down the grid to, to clinch the title by half a point from from prost i think this race more than any in 84 means people do take that view that he sort of calculated his way to the championship uh, over the over the the faster but uh, but less calculating prost Perhaps not quite that simple, though. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I initially didn't want to have this race up this high. But first of all, he picked it as his own race of my life when we... Um, actually, I think it was Adam Cooper interviewed him perhaps in the late 80s, early 90s, and early 90s, I think. And that this was the race that he picked out. And he, he devotes, I think, a whole chapter in his book to, to this race as well. It's clearly a... I think the, the battle against Prost, he considers him to be by far the hardest teammate that he had. Um, that's very much he doesn't actually explicitly say that and as I say he's very complimentary about PK who he's he was briefly teammate with as well but I think that going up against Prost in 84 took more out of louder than any of his other campaigns and even rated it ahead of the 77 title which if you think about what he'd come through before is quite amazing but yes um, he he also picked this race out I think because he had really quite a troubled weekend he had all sorts of problems and even in the race there was a problem with the left bank of uh, the, the left hand turbo on the engine so he was he struggled to get through the other cars but he was able to he stayed patient he didn't get himself into into trouble and he he actually always thought that he would have caught Nigel Mansell's Lotus for second and I was looking at the, the lap time graph on this and it, it was going to be tight because he started closing at a rate that would have done it and they get into traffic and Mansell's actually a bit quicker through the traffic the louder it is and it goes up and if you applied the same rate of um, the way he was catching him before that afterwards it would have been very close but of course would they have got to the end without more traffic i think that possibly he wouldn't quite have made it it would have been really close that's an interesting one isn't it because it could have added yeah. that extra dimension of that late charge needed to do it could he have dug deep and and put it on the line to to make the move yeah if you don't could take, never answer it if he caught and passed Mansa with two laps to go to win a world championship by half a point i mean that's even more amazing isn't it <laughs> but, uh, but yeah i thought that uh, just the whole the pressure around the whole season and that race and by then he very much felt that the, the, the team or certainly Ron Dennis wanted Prost to be world champion um, so yeah I think he felt he was fighting against the odds for that one and I think it takes a lot when you're in a fight like that and in a difficult situation to to just keep your focus on doing what you're doing and not just let give up almost it's not like you think oh I won't bother but you do see drivers who have adverse situations and they just don't 
they they just can't recover from it. They can't pick themselves up and just do what they can do. They 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 lose track of it. And that's obviously one of the key reasons why Lauda was so successful. Well, number two on the list is last victory, nineteen eighty five Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort, the the high point of his of his final season. Yes, yeah, so. Um... It's another one of these um, uh, battles against against Prost, um, and they both they both make pit stops. Um, Lauda comes through the field, but can't get to Prost. He says because he picked uh, in those days you could pick different compounds and different corners of the car, which I think they should bring back. I think that was great. And he had three softs and one hard, and he had too much oversteer. Uh, and he he claimed that um, the agreement was if you stop if he stopped after a certain point, they would bolt four softs on. And they came in and he had the tyre stop and he went out. He still doesn't handle right. And they, they put three softs and one hard on again. Prost came in later and had a worse stop. Um, so Lauder actually takes the lead. Prost comes out, but he's on, he is on the four softs. And, you know, Prost at this point is heading for his first world title. Lauder's had a dismal season. And the expectation is that, that Prost will obviously catch and pass him. There are no team orders. Um and I don't think, you know, Lauda was happy to help Prost for, to win that title, but not at that point in the season. Prost closed him down and, and, and Lauda held him off, um, including a real, uh, I'm not going to say Verstappen-style attack, uh, <laughs> but a pretty major lunge from Prost on the last lap into the chicane that Nicky defends well and holds on, despite the fact that obviously the tyres are pretty gone and the car's unbalanced by then and wins by two-tenths of a second. So possibly the hardest challenge he had for a race lead at the end during his during his career um and to hold off the, i think it's kind of almost a changing of the guard but not just quite yet it's the last it's his last great win i think well of course it was almost his his final act in formula one because he had uh an accident a throttle stuck open missed a couple of races john watson actually replaced him at uh, brands hatch uh, yeah so I, th- I think it's great that he did have that final victory in the, in the last season uh, it showed that he could uh he could very much still do it and well number one Another one that's not a victory, but it's funny. We kind of talk about a driver who almost the evaluation of him always gets overwhelmed by the Nürburgring accident, and then of course you've gone with the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, where he finished fourth. <laughs> I've gone ruin coming back, ruined the whole structure of your podcast. Ed, yeah, sorry. I just thought you can't I, get past I, it. Though, I, can you? I just think it's beyond a normal way you can judge a race. I think t- to come back from an accident like that with the injuries that he had, the circumstances at Ferrari that we talked about. Um, yeah, the pin and the balaclava off, and also he, yeah, he he was frightened of the car in on the Friday when he came back. So it's six weeks after his Nurburgring crash, his injuries are still, I think, raw is probably the best way of putting it. Um, yeah, he's not mentally right to go racing. To be honest, I think I think Jackie Stewart later said that he yeah he sh- he shouldn't probably have been there, and he probably wouldn't have been allowed to do it now. Um, but to come out, scare himself on the Friday completely reset, come out and then out qualify the other two Ferraris because there were three Ferraris to that race. Reutemann and Rogazzoni were in the cars as well. And then to to drive at racing speeds, you know, with a helmet, I think, on a bit more loosely because, you know, obviously the, you know, all these facial um, injuries uh, and to hold off, you know, it wasn't a cruise round either. He had Jody Schechter right on his backside at the end. I think he'd beaten by a tenth to take fourth. Just, uh, I think, a, 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 a race so far above what we would normally measure this criteria. I think it's probably the greatest motorsport comeback. And I just thought I can't not put it first. So sorry to, uh, sorry if I've ruined your plans. No, you, you can't argue <laughs> with it really. It's, it's a unique set of circumstances. Isn't yeah. it? And I think it reflects again, that, that just determination that he, he, he wanted to come back and show he could, st- it's, it's almost like that refusal 
to be beaten by the accident. And that's why he wanted to get in as soon as he possibly could, even if it was not necessarily a very a very wise idea. And of course, also that result laid the foundations for him almost winning the World Championship. Well, of course, had Fuji been dry, you would probably say that that Monza performance is a World Championship winning race. Because uh, he actually excluded McLaren and we oh they were having a disastrous weekend, Italian authorities, blah blah. Um so that yeah, those those three points could have could have won in the championship. Um in fact, he talks about Fuji later on in his autobiography where he basically said, oh, I thought, you know, it stopped raining shortly after the start. He said, all I had to do was cruise round. There were enough people falling off and not going very quickly. I could probably have speeded up later on when it dried. But, you know, I think he was braver for probably for pulling in really and sticking to his to his guns on that. But, uh, I mean, I made a... Because, uh, as you know, I'm the, I love lists. So I did start making lists of greatest motorsport comebacks and I ended up with Louder at number one and two. <laughs> second rated two and one for Monza 76 yeah well that's a good way of looking at it and I think to summarise Nicky Lauda just uh, someone who just had an incredible impact on Formula 1 not just through his success as a driver but off track and just a, a character who achieved so much in such a, such a correct way I guess the way he went about things as well it just makes him uh, just just a completely entirely different kind of world champion to all to all the other greats really you couldn't you can't really put him in in a box with another with another great driver he he sort of stands there as, as somebody who did it did it his way and did it brilliantly yeah absolutely i think that's quite a good quite a good summary isn't it he did, he he did do it his way um and and no apologies for it um and but and actually but not in a way that that i don't think he I don't think he, he did anything wrong, as you say. It wasn't like he had a reputation for just driving people off the road or for... There were, yeah. few, there were a few clashes early on. Yeah, but, but he didn't... Yeah, exactly. He's not... Like, he's not. He, you don't have the debate about him like you would have, say, about Senna or Schumacher in terms of their on-track etiquette and stuff like that. And he probably he doesn't have the Fernando Alonso sort of... Dis, or is he or is he not destructive within the team? You know, he, he was forthright. But, you know, the teams he, were at, he was at were better when he was there. You know, he he was a a person who could pull a team around around him and, and and get it to go in the right way, and that was whether he was in the cockpit or not. Um, just a very successful person with whatever he turned his mind to. I think. Yeah, and a, and a great loss to the to the Formula One paddock. The, the reaction in Monaco, as I said, was was heartfelt, and I think when you get someone who has that impact on so many people, you, you have to sort of take seriously their contribution. I mean, I, I can't say I knew him massively well but I did deal with him obviously in, in Formula 1 over the years and always found him an interesting and engaging and, and forthright forthright character so uh, I don't, don't think I'm in the minority on that one so yeah a, a great driver and uh, and it's it's always a shame when you get to this point that these these people that are part of the furniture almost you always take for granted suddenly they're not here and you can't go and ask them any more questions about this race or that race and say do you agree with this this ranking we've come up well with yeah here? it's a shame he's not here now to to, to go over you know to, to just do a podcast with him and talk about all the <laughs> stuff that we we have done but with with him but uh, there you go i'm sure he'd had some forthright opinions i'm sure that. he'd have told me what was wrong with my list <laughs> plenty I, I i imagine but yeah uh, a great loss to, to motorsport but but what a what an incredible life you know did so much in so many different arenas that if he just done one one set of 
those things you'd, you'd, you'd be talking about about what a, what a legend he was so uh, yeah a, a great loss and it's been it's been great to to talk about him and uh, and his his efforts behind the wheel so thanks very much Kevin Turner obviously this week's Autosport has got your your greatest uh, Nicky Lauder drives and that Nigel Robot piece we mentioned a few times so pick up Autosport magazine for a copy of that that should be out now do check out autosport.com there's still some Nicky Lauder content uh, you, you can find on there we ran a whole load of stuff when the, the unfortunate news emerged and of course we've got all the news from Formula 1 and the rest of the world of motorsport and do have a look at our plus subscriber area where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalist on all sorts of topics Check out Sister Titles, F1 Racing Magazine, out monthly, motorsport.com and Motorsport News. And obviously the Autosport podcast is out every Monday and Thursday, so subscribe to us on iTunes, go to the Spreaker website, you can like us on there if you like what you hear. We regularly uh, do these great driver podcasts, they crop up every few months or so. We've done Graham Hill in the past, Ronnie Peters, and they're always they're always, always interesting. Yeah, who should we do next? Perhaps, perhaps, the re- perhaps the readers and listeners should tell us who they'd like us to do. Actually, no, they'd not have to do another list really quickly, wouldn't they? I'm, I'll I'm, work on them all. I think we should do Andrea Cesare seeing as he cropped up in this one. I might struggle with the ten. We could do the ten most hilarious retirements. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if he had a, a, a third of Nicky Lauder's uh, self control, I think he'd have probably won quite quite a few races. So, thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Auto Sport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just two fifty. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.